What's good, what's good, what's good, family? Welcome back to another episode of Reimagining Youth Work. This episode, I'm actually talking to my team. I'm talking to the Youth Mentoring Action Network staff. You're going to hear me sit down and talk with Kade Maldonado, who is our Director of Training and Outreach, Isabella Chavez, who is our Director of Programs. Uh, these two folks are my backbone in the Youth Mentoring Action Network. Um, they are doing a lot of our front-facing work uh, with young people, with other organizations as we train them, et cetera. What I really wanted to do in this particular episode was kind of get down to the bottom of how we operate as a team, um, our approach, our vision, our philosophy about youth work. You know, folks are always asking me, how do I come up with this stuff? You know, what what is my process like? Um, and so sitting down with my team and letting you hear how they as young people, because they are, you know, it's, in most of our definitions, young people, how they as young people, you know, bring their strategy, their power, their skill set um, to the organization, the kinds of ways we think about our work, um, how we are trying to get our work done, uh, the ways in which our own sort of personal identities um, come to life in our work and influence and impact our work. So this episode, I really want you to take away process, strategy, you know, a vision, sort of how we think about these things, how we approach these things. Uh, and a lot of my trainings and professional development workshops, I'm always talking to folks about not necessarily looking at some sort of checklist, right, or, or tool kit um, that you can just grab from, but really shifting your culture, shifting the way you think and approach things. And this is what this episode is about. So I want you to just take note uh, of how we how we process our work, how we think about our work, how we approach our work. And also just what what means something to us, like what's at the root of the Youth Mentoring Action Network culture. I think you're going to love it. Um, really happy to introduce some of you to Isabella and Kade, although uh, um, probably many of you have worked with them in some capacity or another. All right, without further ado, let's get into it. This is Dr. Tori weeston certain and you are listening to Reimagining Youth Work. What's good, what's good, what's good, fam? Today is very special because I am actually sitting here speaking to the Iman team. Um, everybody is always asking who is the genius, the brilliance behind everything that Iman does. Today, you get the opportunity to hear from these young folks who have guided me and who have um, been alongside me as we do this work with, alongside, for young people. So I have my director of training and outreach, Kade Maldonado, and I have my director of programs, Isabella Chavez. What's good, y'all? Hey, <laughs> excited to be here. Thank y'all for being willing to indulge me. <laughs> Kade's like, yeah. <laughs> so I really wanted to talk to you all because like I said in the intro, I know that folks are like, okay, what's the secret sauce? What are y'all doing over there? And I keep telling them it's you guys, but you know, I think folks have to hear for themselves. <laughs> so I would like to have 
really just an open, laid back conversation about our work, about the state of the world, especially about the state of the world in relationship to our work. Um, and we had a pre-conversation, so I'm sure some of that will come up. But maybe let's start, and we can start with you, Kade, about telling us a little more about your own story and what brought you to this work. And then, Isabella, if you can follow. For sure. Um, yeah, I think it all started with me, like, sort of reflecting and thinking, like, I didn't have mentors going throughout my entire life. Like, I didn't have a dedicated person. Um, sort of the work that we engage um, organizations in and train folks in and, and get people ready is like, hey, you're the mentor, you're going to engage with this young person. Hopefully it's like a lifelong relationship, all that good stuff. Um, yeah, I didn't have that. So reflecting on that, or I felt I didn't have that. But then I started to realize as I kind of went through life, like it wasn't, it was a more of our critical mentoring, you know, practical guide, Dr. Torweiss and certain like vibe of it takes a village. And so it was like a whole slew of people along this, this long journey through elementary, middle school, high school and then sort of like in that early 20s stage you start to realize like whoa that person made a difference and this person made a difference and that person actually gave me this idea and which led me here and you start to trace back all these all these sorts of points in your life for these like you know these little checkpoints and and things and um and yeah so I grew up in LA um I grew up in Pico Union and um East LA East LA with my mom Pico Union with my abuelos and my dad um Central American neighborhood in largely Mexican-American neighborhoods, right, in Los Angeles with rich and powerful histories and stuff like that. So got a little bit of that organically through just the environment I grew up in and everything. And um, and yeah, just made some great people through that sort of like social justice Catholic vibe at first and then broke out into other areas of like activism or, or just critical thinking and pedagogy and all this really cool stuff. And um, and yeah, and it was the mentors really in college that kind of guided me and my uh, abuela who adopted me um, as her adopted nieto, Dr. Uh, Lorde Sarguez introduced me to, to you, um, to the big, mighty uh, Dr. Tori Wiesen Serdin and, um, and it all just kind of like kept going from there. So yeah. <laughs> Appreciate you. Uh, yeah, so like Gada, I never really thought much about mentoring or mentorship uh, through the majority of, I think, of my early educational career. Um, and it wasn't until I met actually uh, Dr. Tori Wieston-Serdin in an English class in high school um, that I actually started to think uh, differently. And it was actually, I think, I would have benefited from having so many teachers and mentors beforehand who were able and willing to uh, engage with me on critical concepts. I know I had this idea of like colorblindness growing up and thinking that like, you know, we're all equal. We're in like a post-race society and like, you know, <laughs> everything is like, everything's fine. Everything, um, I have equal opportunities. Everything's going to be great. And I knew that as I started navigating my own queerness and as I uh, understood my Latinx identity more deeply, I started to realize about the same time that I met you, uh, Tori, that that wasn't the case. And it was just, a, I was primed and ready to go through your course and, and talk about you know, race in a more critical way, talk about it in relation to the course material, but then also in our conversations, just you and I, and it was about high school politics. It was about educators and you asked me questions that I didn't really have answers to, I think at the time. And so it really prompted me to go back and then reconsider um, like God has said, the mentors that I did have in my life. 
um, and reconsider um, my own identity and what I wanted to do. And truthfully, it was that relationship that started between the two of us very young um, that made me uh, feel very, very passionate about youth work, be very, very passionate about engaging young people because in many ways you taught me that young people are gonna be the stepping stone. They're gonna be the, the ground floor on whatever change we see in the world. And <clears throat> I think that when you and I put together the LGBTQ workshop, it was the first sort of project that you and I had together, I that. Yeah. Uh, which was, um, you know, you just asking me like, hey, how do you want to support your peers? And it was me realizing that so many of my peers didn't have queer mentors. They didn't have a single adult in their life that they could talk to about queer issues. You know, I was raised Catholic. I was raised in a first generation home. And so I I also didn't have those people in my life. And so what you asked me to do is, is to do it. And you said, okay, let's build something. Let's work with some parents. Let's work with some educators and some mentors. And let's you know, bring your knowledge to the table and help them be better for young people. And so at a, at a, I got my first taste of, of what I now understand is activism at, at a very young age. And it made me realize that like using my voice and being in these spaces was going to be something that's going to be a part of my life forever. And I, I consider myself very, very blessed to be a part of the Iman team and for it to be so much a part of like my lifestyle and my livelihood. Appreciate both of y'all. I, I, the one of the first questions I'm gonna just dive into is like, what's it like to work with Iman? Because I think that's what, again, that's something that the audience is gonna want to know. Like, how is it different here? And I'm, you know, I'm really not fishing for any compliments. Like, that's not even what I'm going for. But I'm just looking for how do we give the audience a vibe of the kind of culture we've created at Iman that creates the work that we do. <clears throat> sure. I can, I can take this one first. I feel like I struggle to answer this question with everyone. <laughs> everyone asks me like, what do you do? And it's funny because I have little part and parcel little answers for people. And sometimes it feels like, what don't we do? What, what don't I do? Uh, the truth is I feel like every single day is, is different. Um, you know, sometimes it's like, 8 p.m. and I'm receiving a text message from two to like three students. And it's just like, hey, like I know this form is coming up. Like I need help filling it out. Or, you know, there's this program that's happening tomorrow at like nine in the morning. Like, can you give me a little bit more details? And that's a little bit of my program uh, director side that's in front of like the youth facing work. And so uh, young people, as they are developing themselves and as we are building better programs for them, that is a, a certain amount or a certain uh, I have to have a certain flexibility when it comes to that work because you know people are imperfect people have their own lives going on and so um managing the program side of things is, is learning to be very flexible and anticipating a possible like gap in gap in service or a gap in our foresight um yes yeah, so i would just say like very very different and then there's the, the outreach and training side which i've been able to help gather on um and it's taken me all across the country now uh, so it's there's there's the the youth facing work where it's like I get to interact with young people, um, and then there's the the work that that takes us to interact with adults who are invested in young people, and and that's been very interesting because communities are so different, right? And so like as we go into different communities, we realize that the needs are different, their service populations are different, um, and and so the conversations that we get to have. Are, are never the same. They're never one and the same. And so I'm constantly learning 
And I, I feel like I'm constantly in just like a, a crash course in, in learning about people, learning about investing in communities and all that stuff. So never the same. One day is, is never completely expected or, or planned, I feel like. <laughs> For sure. Definitely. Um, yeah, I, I agree with so much of that. And um, yeah, I feel like at least on the director of training outreach side of everything, it, it's a lot of hurry up and wait. Um, working with different organizations, right? They got different needs. They got to think through their things. Um, you know, if they are an organization that already has that critical framework attached, right? So they're thinking through what they need to think through critically to, to see like, is this the best move? What else should we consider? You know, like how many meetings should we have prior to that and stuff? And so it's been really cool to see organizations like taking up more critical frameworks and engaging with them and then seeing what that looks like. And then that improves your practice and what you're going to theorize and what you're going to try to put into your trainings and all that good stuff. So there's a lot of that going on. Um, but yeah, but just a lot of the hurry up and wait, it's like, it, it's super busy. You know, we get like four or five organizations wanting completely different things, but then we respond and then it's like, all right, cool. Now we just got to wait to see where the chips fall and stuff like that. So very much in, in, in tune with what Isabella was pointing out about this work, especially working in the nonprofit industrial complex and just engaging with our communities and stuff like that, it takes time. Um, you know, it, it's a it's a process. We're all just kind of walking and running at this, you know, all together in the same line, it feels like, but some folks run a little bit further. Other folks are kind of just like jogging, like, oh yeah, it makes sense. And other folks are just like walking, you know, chilling and everything. So um, it's definitely super interesting. And, and, and a good point that Isabella brings up is just like learning about communities and, and different vibes within certain spaces within like, you know, um, policymakers in our region with with uh, communities that are engaged in activism with immigration or post incarceration services and stuff like that. Um, um, local farming and everything, right? There's all these like, you know, chismes or things or rules or things that we should be learning about our communities or, or different strategies that one community thinks works really well for them. But another community is like, no, nah, we tried that actually a few years ago, but no one thought to ask us. Um, mm -hmm. So really just, yeah, just seeing where the chips fall and, yeah. and all that and, and taking it one day at a time, one step at a time. And lots of chill time too, I think is super important. I think at Iman, we, we definitely get that, that chill time in and, and get to work at our own pace, which is really, really nice because you can work in so many different organizations and do that nine to five that ends up being nine to 10 or whatever. And you're still thinking about work. And I think we do that sometimes too. We're still thinking about work at 10 PM, but at least we're like chilling, doing it. We're watching our Netflix or reading a book or something like that. And it's, it's good, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Self-care is real and encouraged. <laughs> so Kade specifically, because you, you do a lot of like working with other organizations for us, What's different about us um, than other orgs? Because I know like you do a lot of, even the initial assessment of like, okay, who are you? What do you do? What are you about? What do you need our help with? What do you see that's like unique or different about Iman that, you know, sort of requires us to support these other organizations? For sure. Oh, that's, a, that's a hard question because I feel like <laughs> I'm trying to talk us up but not like, you know what I mean? Yeah, but um, thinking about it, um, I think what's really different is, you know, uh, with a lot of organizations that have been established and have been around and have been in communities and stuff like that, you sort of see this kind of going back to that sort of thing I was talking about where people are running and then other folks are jogging, other folks are walking, right? You see a lot more of that walking in, in bigger, more established organizations. 
Um, and they take more time to think about things, right? If you bring up something in a meeting or if you bring up something in a training, right? There's a little bit of a sort of like sifting a breakdown that has to go on internally within that organization. Whereas like with us, I feel like we're three, you know, and even our board as well and our young folks, like we're just really independent minded. Like, let's just talk about these things, engage in conversation, break it down, argue a little bit, cool, kiss and make up, all that good stuff. Like it all kind of happens in one setting, which is really, really special. And I think is like more realistic of how our communities and how the world sort of works is like, we really do need to be breaking this thing down, but it doesn't need to take two to three weeks or a month, right? Or a whole year to roll out that new program um, or change our entire way of doing things. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of see us as like this really small reactionary force that can kind of come up and think about things and, and engage in different ways. And and I think what's kind of special too about us is that we, we, we can engage, I think, with anybody. You know what I mean? We have critical thoughts about um, about maybe how a certain organization might be training or, or doing things right. Um, but we can get along with everyone and like really figure out like, Hey, at the end of the day, it's really about engaging our young folks and making changes in their lives. Right. So that's super important. Right. And I feel like in our world, you get a lot of the, like, Oh, we don't work with them or we don't, we don't do that anymore and stuff like that. And like, I know for myself and Isabella, we're just like, no, you know what on the ground, like, cool. There might've been some beep there at some point. Um, but that doesn't really matter right because at the end of the day like it's really about our young folks in our communities and, and growing a better ie for everybody um and building a better ie as, as a community or as a region really for sure for sure and if i could just chime in really quickly on that too i i think about what morgan said to us at one of the strategy meetings that she was at and saying like don't grow come on <laughs> don't grow that. Don't, don't make another office. Don't, don't grow into other places. And at first I was like, I don't, you know, it made me feel bad. I mean, for like, why don't you want us to grow? Why don't you want us to serve more people? Um, But she made this case for how, how impactful and valuable the small relationships are. And the fact that um, we have quite a bit of flexibility when it comes to youth work. Right. And so I think that a lot of other organizations try to create like a cookie cutter model mm. for what youth work should look like. Right. Um, and a lot of times it comes down, and I think truthfully it's structured off of like academia, right? Where it's like, these are the standards mm-hmm. that need to be met. And this is the type of buy-in and relationship that we need to have. And it looks really, really good on paper and it, and it makes sense to a certain degree, but it ignores the fact that, that students are really different. Their needs are really different and how much they want to interact with an adult in their life changes throughout their life, right? So that's, I may not be at a point in my life where I'm ready to meet with an adult like three, four hours a week, right? And some youth need more than three, four hours a week. Some, it's like, I really want someone to be there for me professionally. I want to, you know, this adult to be a stepping stone for my career. And for others, they just want like an adult to be there to talk about their personal issues. And, and it can be difficult when I think that some organizations, they say that, okay, as a mentor, you need to, hit or you need to check every box and you need to go down the line to make sure and i think that sometimes with young people it feels like that you know they're like okay they're making sure they get their math requirement in right today and so i think that one of the things that's really different about us is there's a a pretty high degree of flexibility and a a different amount of buy-in you know if you talk to the different young people that we work with some might say that oh i go to every single program i go to every single event and i love that and others are like wow i had a really really great time at this one event but i know that those other events probably wouldn't be for me 
And I don't think that that cheapens the relationships that we have. And I think that truthfully, that's youth centrism is allowing young people to decide what their own buying is going to be and kind of decide what the structure of the relationship with their mentors as well as the organization is going to be. I feel like um, a lot of this, a lot of what you guys are talking to or talking about is have, have been the result of lessons learned as an educator, like from on my part as an educator, right? Because I've been working in schools for the last 15 years, um, primarily the high school English classroom. I've been sort of looking at what it, not just what it takes to be a teacher, but what it takes to really connect with young people and what that means for, you know, first for getting information to them and then secondly for just helping them in life. And I feel like everything, and I always tell people this, but I feel like everything that happened in my classroom, or not in my classroom per se, but in schools, I was just kind of like, this ain't going to work. <laughs> I kept looking at things and I caught it. I know you and I have had countless conversations where I've been like, don't become a teacher. It's going to be terrible. Um, and it's not that I don't want like young folks of color to become teachers. I do. But just recognizing how limiting working within that system was and how the work that I really knew I needed to do with young people could not be done within that bureaucracy, within that system. Like it's not radical, it's not free, it's not imaginative, it's not innovative. None of that stuff is like really there. You have sparks of it. You have teachers that are cool as hell, that will do some stuff, that'll create some programs. And honestly, if it weren't for some good teach some good teachers, like schools would practically suck, right? Like there, there's nothing else to them. If, if it's not for the good teachers in the building, like there's not a lot else to them. Um, so I feel like I learned from like the behemoth of, of school institutions and then bringing that to Iman and saying, like, we can't we, we can't be that bureaucratic. We can't like stifle voices. We can't like we have to be more flexible. We have to be more responsive because if we don't, then we lose young people. Right. Um, and the worst thing for me as a as a youth centered organization was to to lose young people. So it was like, how can I actually build I don't even want to call us a system or an institution, but it was like, how can I build processes where we could get our work done, but we could be responsive, where we can be flexible, where we could like pivot if we needed to, right? And I've seen kind of over and over again, this sort of affirmation that the, that the universe has given us, like even with COVID-19, it was like, schools had no clue what to do. They're like, whoa, you know, like there was just like this long process and again, teachers, good teachers were like, okay, we'll figure this out. We'll do it. You know what I mean? But for Iman, it was like, we could do, we could pivot. We were so used to being flexible. We were so used to sort of like, okay, let's move here. Let's move there. That it was like, okay, we're not shifting a lot, actually. Um, we're still going to connect with the young people. We're still going to do it on their terms. You know, we're still going to kind of, all of our values as an organization, centering young people, like employing young people, all that stuff. None of that stuff like ever shifted during the pandemic. Um, and to me, like, that's what it was about. It was like looking, learning from the teaching model or the education model and saying, we have to be the opposite of that, right? Or, other, or otherwise, otherwise, we're not going to get anything done. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Um, wait, sorry, can I jump in, Isabella? There's like, <laughs> 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 made there. Yeah, there's so much, there's so much there, right? We're just like... <laughs> And I, yeah, and I think like COVID has shown us that like a lot because of the fact that 
I feel like a lot of other organizations um, and not putting them down or anything because it's just like the way that the system is set up and stuff, but they have they have bottom lines. They have to quantify things. They have to make sure that things are going to be there, um, that young people are going to graduate, get to college, that they're still going to be able to put like so-and-so went to UCLA, so-and-so went to Stanford, so-and-so went to all these different places, right? Um, and all that. And like, that's not us because that's not like, sure, we have grants, we have things that we need to do where we need to demonstrate like these are the things that we've engaged in and changed or whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day, it wasn't we're doing things because we need to, it's doing things because we want to in collaboration with young folks. And not only that, it's like, it's not about the quantification of things, right? It's about our qualitative feel. It's about understanding how our young folks are doing um, engaging with them like, hey, you don't want to do a Zoom call in, in two weeks? Cool. Yeah, because you already got like six other Zoom calls you need to do for classes and stuff, right? Um, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, and so just really thinking through all of that and, and, and making sure and ensuring, creating our own sort of process or system, whatever we'd like to call it, where we don't have to engage in that if we don't want to and we don't have to produce stuff for young folks if they're not even going to engage in it in the first place, because that's just not effective, right? We're just kind of running in circles and just doing things to show for what and all that. So for sure. Yeah. And, and Tori, what you said about moving away from the educational model, which I guess I should say both my parents are educators. They've been educators both for over a decade. And so I've seen a lot of it in my home and growing up, and I've always seen education as very standardized, very about meeting benchmarks. And I think that a lot of nonprofit organizations want to replicate that. So what they end up doing is standardizing connections and standardizing relationships, which just from a human experience perspective isn't possible because every single relationship is completely complex and different than, than one another. And so what happens in schools, and I think in some nonprofits is you create an assembly line right, or, or for marginalized students, truthfully, a pipeline, right, where they're being pushed into, uh, you know, the carceral system, into the juvenile justice system and everything. And that's because of this, again, they're not meeting the standards. They're not meeting the benchmarks that we keep trying to set, which there's a, there's a point about respectability and there's a point on what the, the right person is in there. Um, but I think that also schools and, and, and youth work as a whole has taken away the responsibilities that should lie within the community. Adults within the community should feel a responsibility for young people. And with the educational model that we have, it's like so much of the responsibility is put on the teacher, right? And it's not on the parent. It's not on the community that's around this child. And so what we saw with COVID is all of these parents saying, oh my gosh, teachers need to be paid more, right? <laughs> this is so crazy. But to me, that says, so you weren't interacting with your young person on an educational level, on a developmental level. You weren't building that sort of relationship in addition to a parent-child relationship. And so I think that what we try to do with our intergenerational dialogue, and truthfully, I think this is one of the most difficult things to train on, and this is one of the most difficult things for me to even put together as a program, is bringing the community in. Like, how do we bring the parents? How do we bring in the grandparents and the aunts and everything? And how do we make a point for community learning, mm -hmm. for community development, and everything right. that puts more responsibility on all adults, yeah. not just those who are in teaching positions, you know, nonprofit mentor positions, etc. For sure. I think what like I think there were two times I remember I felt like we did that well. And one was when we did the, the intergenerational black girls talk, black women and girls talk, where there was like my grandma was in the room and then like 
there were what, like five or six year olds in the room and everyone in between. And we just had this really open conversations about conversation about like not just black girl things, but just also generational things. I, I like vividly remember like the women who had more age. I'll try to be like really sensitive about that. We're just like, oh, these were my experiences. And um, and then the younger women being like, like, basically, why are we still dealing with that same stuff? Like you dealt with it. Now we're dealing with it. Like, where, when are we going to sort of break this chain, right? I think the other place that I saw it that I felt like we did it well was when we went to the self-care lab and we had a, a good age, a group of age ranges there too. Um, and I just felt like, I mean, I feel like there are particular things and partic particular situations and particular reasons why different generations come together, but really learning how to craft a space where generations come together and are able to talk to each other is, is like a magical thing and a beautiful thing, right? Um, and I feel like in those two events, like we did it really well and we, we kind of, we can take those strategies and keep, you know, continue to use them. But to me, it's becoming more and more important for our work to be um, in dialogue with community. Um, and and for the reasons that you all noted, that like we're all responsible for for taking care of young people, not just schools, not just teachers. And it's bad on, you know, our end as a community that we haven't done it, but it's also, you know, I don't want to be too harsh uh, towards schools, but it's also been schools because they're standardizing things and because they have a certain status in the community being like, you know, we know best what to do for young people. And so that just makes other people in the community feel like, well, okay, I don't have anything to offer. And I see that happening with, you know, members of the nonprofit industrial complex too, that are like, well, because we have these standards of like who you need to be and what you need to bring to the table, then that just makes people in the community feel like, well, I could never be a mentor because I don't really look like what you're marketing toward, or I don't, I don't, I'm not middle class or, you know, like I don't have these kinds of assets or so, you know, they think, um, and it just, it, it's not, it's again, it's isolation, it's ivory tower. It becomes like problematic. And then you can't really call yourself a community org. Like, I feel like you can't do that. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I think we've gotten to a point too, where I think young folks have gotten a point to where they can be resilient and and and, and faking course material, thinking they, they know stuff, but and that's just like the way that the system's been set up for mm -hmm. them to educate themselves, right? It's like I just gotta pass that test. I just gotta write that paper and I don't even believe in that, but that's just what I know I gotta do. And then but you can't fake that developmental relationship. You can't fake that relationship building. Cause even our young folks know, like, oh yeah, they're 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 not real, they're fake, or like so miss so and so is doing this again, or whatever the case may be. And that I don't I don't mess with that. Um, and that's like been the biggest struggle. And then you hear, you know, older adults like constantly complain, like, oh, why are they all always on their phone? I'm like, well, because there's not genuine connection like with you there or with whoever's there, right? They have that connection on their technology technology is a part of that but mm -hmm. i think we miss out on a lot of the opportunities where we have it in our communities and you know um in our at our homes right like everybody's just like doing their thing we have our parents that go and do work you got your kids that are just going to school they get a basically work to do back at home and then it's just all the same thing the next day right and depending on what your social situation is you don't have time to really engage with folks and learn right and like develop a curiosity about a different career that you would have never heard of because your teacher only talks about police fire and like whatever the case may be or, or, or you know be a teacher or something like that or just get a degree 
Um, and so you don't learn those other points of connection, develop those relationships more holistically. For sure, for sure. So I, go ahead. I just wanted to raise you one more event that I felt, and even in a more personal sense, was a really great intergenerational uh, touch, uh, touchstone was our Black Girls in Power mm-hmm. event in which we had you know young Black women in the room and then um, a lot of older Black women. And at the end, and, and through most of it, there was just a, a community conversation happening between like 100 people. And I don't know if we've ever gotten the chance, you and I, to talk about this, but I invited my mother to that event. And she learned so much, you know, as a Latina, as a woman about, um, you know, the experiences of black women. And she, she, we had a long conversation afterwards and she was telling me that, you know, she realized so many of the issues that were similar, you know, her being a a person of color uh, and an immigrant to this country and the things that she had to navigate as a woman, um, but also the ways that she needed to support, you know, black women also. And so for me, that was a connection point between she and I, because we haven't really had too many conversations about about womanhood, right? Because Mm -hmm. of my queer identity and everything, womanhood has not been a a, a thing that she's been willing to engage me on. And at an event that was so centered on black women and, and, and different generations and the different obstacles that they faced, it was a sort of um, a breakthrough for my own relationship. You know, I'm there working the event and everything, and of course, inviting my mom. But, you know, I was able to have conversations because of this event that I probably wouldn't have. Right. And I think that that's like just sort of like the magic of it. Right. It's just like being in the space can really uh, serve to, to improve relationships. Yeah. So that actually makes me think, and I still have all these questions I haven't asked y'all because we're flowing already, but that also makes me think about how Iman's work has just changed our own lives. Right. And like, I was talking to you guys beforehand just about, you know, everything that's going on with me being concerned about my mom and my grandmother and um, keeping them safe and, and transitions, you know, and all these different elements but I feel like Iman's work has definitely been a reflection of my own internal processes of healing, like healing, you know, racial trauma that I've endured, personal trauma that I've endured, thinking about, and especially our Black Girls in Power work, like thinking very specifically about the Black women who raised me and how important that was and like pouring those, that understanding into our programming and trying to like, again, curate spaces where other folks can have the sort of internal experiences that I've been having. Um, so I, I think that would be like, like my next question for you guys. How is our work, how is our work, not just a reflection um, of, of, of you personally, but how has it also helped to sort of pro- helped you to process yourself and your experiences personally? How many more minutes do we have on the podcast? <laughs> Like a, so, like a four-hour conversation, <laughs> boss. <laughs> I know it got deep real quick. <laughs> it, it shifted from all right, cool, cool, and then just now we we we're just dug in now. All right, um, I get I can start that um, a little bit, trying to uh, to kind of delve through that. Um, but yeah, but just like I'm a white passing Latinx, like Chicano dude. And, you know, and, and navigating that in our world has been interesting and stuff like that, growing up in a predominantly brown neighborhood and stuff and being one of the more lighter skinned folks that like that is there, not being considered to be like part of that community and stuff like that. Even though I grew up there as my home and stuff, but 
like navigating that stuff and navigating the complexities of that and then benefiting from those things later. Um, and then sort of like developing own, my own prejudices of like our communities and stuff and seeing just sort of this like weird inherent segregation, you know, as far as like, oh, that's the Brown community. That's the, the Latinx community right across the way. South Central was like pretty, pretty close, right? That's the black community. We don't really go there. And you, you learn all these things going along and then you learn this toxicity too. And then even just the male side of all that as well is like super problematic and a lot of stuff to unpack. Um, and sort of that journey through through college and 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 just tons of like you know hurtful you know intense experiences and stuff like that like Iman was that place where it's like nah you're good like just relax for a little bit think and digest and learn from our young folks hear from folks like allow them to help you kind of like digest that stuff on your own when you get back home after an event or you know even through the training and stuff like that like I I knew I like I I agree with these things and I engage in them and I, and I want these things to be, you know, our training materials or whatever, like how do you engage black and brown young folks? How do you engage like diverse communities and all that stuff? Super important. But then it's like great to take that back home and just know like this is healing actually, right? Because I'm actually working through this myself, right? And, and, and no one is like born woke or on the process of waking up. And it's like this really dope activist quote that I have been seeing on Instagram and stuff like that. Um, and it really is, it's a, it's a huge process. And I really don't think you do that unless you engage in this type of work. Cause it, I mean, you don't get it in the quote unquote real world or you don't get it outside of academia or outside of acad um, activist spaces. Right. Um, and as soon as you leave those and you, you really got to be careful with where you navigate, you know, your next part of your, your life's chapters and stuff. And, and if you go too far away from all that stuff where you don't have that grounding experience, then you lose all that. Right. And you just kind of go back into society and you might go back to that color blindness or you're just your regular values that you, you knew that you, you know, um, abide by and everything. But, um, but I think to be constantly engaged in this work and constantly have a process that's ongoing and recognizing that it is ongoing and it won't ever stop and it shouldn't, I think is super important. And Iman allows us to do that, I think. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of difficult because there's, there's how much Iman affected me while I was a young person in Iman and, and through our mentorship as it, as it was, you know, as it existed early on and then how it transitioned into me and, and my professional identity. Um, because it's, it's been so developmental and, and, and important in my life um, for so many years now. So it's hard to like, sort of like condense it all together. But um, I think initially having an adult who is an out, you know, queer woman, you know, working in education and everything and, and being able to have conversations about my, my queerness and stuff was insanely impactful because I didn't, I, again, like I said earlier, I didn't have that. Um, and then that transitioning into, so Etiwanda High School, which is the school where we met at, then returning there and being able to work for multiple sessions, working with my own teachers yeah. on better supporting LGBTQ students, which I was when I was there at Etiwanda and having frank conversations about what my experience was like there was, I mean, it was cathartic. It felt almost like therapy in a way to like return to this place where I had experienced trauma and experienced um, difficulty of navigating my own identity and then to work to change it mm -hmm. for young people who are going to be following me, yeah. which again was, uh, it was a super cathartic experience and it solidified, I think my goals as, as a professional and as an activist. Um, and then there was, Oh gosh, 
I'm going to really, really try not to get emotional. But then there was also my transition. And for most, if not, yeah, for most trans people, it's impossible to transition and keep your job. To do something like that and to have people in your life who, you know, remain your friends, remain your coworkers and treat you with a sense of respect and even at baseline just keep you employed is almost unheard of, right? And to be able to be continuing in this work and to continue um, my job, my, my profession and still be able to transition has been a gift that, I mean, I, I truthfully, I, I don't even know what to say. I mean, there's, there's a thank you in there somewhere, but I think there's also a, a credit to the truth of of what this organization is and it's and it truthfully is critical it truthfully is mindful of the different intersections of identity um and we truthfully do think about these relationships and so i mean iman has kind of been a uh, just a cornerstone of my own identity as a professional as a woman as a latinx individual and as a youth um you know a youth worker um it's been it's been sort of a lot. It's been a lot to me. Um, and so I'm, I'm very, very blessed to, to be here and to be continuing in this. Appreciate the both of y'all. And both of you have taught me so much too, just even from the age lens, like of you've kept me on my toes in terms of thinking, being more forward thinking, because I feel like, okay, yeah, we're all in the critical work together. So we, you know, we constantly have critical conversations about race and gender and class and all of those things but just on the age level like I definitely feel like I've I'm auntie status like I've aged out of this you know youth perspective and so you guys are like nah boss like <laughs> what about this right um uh, or, or think about this or think think about you know this perspective and so that's that's something that I value too of just like continuing to have even you know, even though we are serving people that are even younger than you guys, like having young folks around me, right? Young professionals around me who are able to say, this is actually how we're thinking about these things, or these are the things that we really care about. Or, you know, here is, you know, my perspective as a, a recent college graduate, right, et cetera. These are things that are important and things that keep me on my toes because I, you know, again, I definitely feel like I've aged out of that sort of, you know, thinking about certain things. And that's been able to, you guys have been able to sort of keep me rooted in making sure that we listen to young people, that we value young people, and not just young people who are under a certain age, but but young professionals too, right? Because sometimes there is that age. And I think you guys are at that where we're like, all right, y'all are good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, y'all got jobs, y'all got, you know, your own places, you're good. But there's still a, a level of, not a level of youth, like you're still young folks, right? Um, and so you bring a lot to the table in that perspective. And it also makes me realize like how when we say young folks, because even right now when I did it, when we say young folks, we almost say it in a demeaning way. Like, you know, young people, like like these people who are young and don't know much, right? And so- There's a deficit of age exactly. or wisdom that comes with that term, which is, it's difficult to say because the DSU are technically young, um, but to try and not make young sound deficit-based is kind of hard. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So like y'all have definitely been, like you've been holding me accountable in that way too and, and really helping, I think, to generate fresh, innovative ideas 
that, you know, folks over a certain age just like we're not going to create on our own. It's just that's what it is. We just don't have that lens. We we don't have that experience anymore. So thank y'all. So my next question is about how we are reimagining youth work. So, you know, Kade spoke earlier or asked earlier, how much time do we have? I know I feel like we're going to we might have to do this in two parts. I don't know how it's going to turn out. <laughs> But I would like a little bit of discussion about like how is Iman reimagining youth work? What what does that look like for us? Um, yeah, so I think uh, what I like to start with is is you know mentoring should exist to you know clear the air and purify the water, right? So moving beyond just making sure that you have a good relationship, making sure that your young person is you know, reaching their full potential, which is something that I think that most folks that are engaged in this work can agree on. There's looking at the context that young people are living in and understanding the fact that, you know, as mentors, once we start to think about young people, once we start to care about them, we start to realize that the world that we're sending them into is not fair, is not always just or even healthy, like from like a, a physical bodily sort of perspective. And so I think that one of the the points of reimagining youth work that I, I, I think fits very um, central to our mission is not just stopping at, okay, you're great. Okay, goodbye. <laughs> like go out into the world and, and, and do the best. But I think that we also do a lot of work with advocacy. We have conversations internally about, like you said earlier, the state of, of the world, the state of our country. And I think also being very frank with our young people, introducing them to ideas that can carry them through and that can help them to um, engage in, in work and engage uh, in their communities in liberatory ways is, is super important, right? So we don't, yeah, so we don't just stop at the relationship. It goes beyond the relationship. We look at the context of young people at, as, as a whole. For sure, I yeah, um, yeah. The, I I think the 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 crucial point to to reimagining uh, youth work is is really like tied to changing individuals. I think like especially the older individuals that engage with young folks. But the only way that you can really do that is by changing those larger systems that those individuals operate within. Um, and so it's hard. And so it's like why abolitionist theories or abolitionist pedagogy and stuff like that is so appealing because it's like, it really calls on us to reimagine everything instead of like, you know, um, uh, just like trying to change like one individual program or one individual, you know, school and everything like that. But it's like, how do we, how do we change this stuff like system wide? Uh, I think that, that that's the crucial point. I think, the thing that I'm still working on and how I really want to reimagine youth work is like, I, I feel like I'm in this weird place where I, I hear older adults like saying, um, or even people my age um, saying like, Oh, these young people, they're not passionate about anything anymore. Um, they don't, they don't have a display or they're not like, they don't talk about things with these like deep passion. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't either. Like, bro, like, what do you mean? Like, why, they're only going to emulate, you know, maybe they'll emulate what you're thrown out there but you're not passionate about much either and like but then at the same time I know that they are passionate about things but the way that our systems you know again are set up it's like you really only got to be passionate about one thing to get to this one goal to do this next thing and then that's it and then you know your life is over goodbye um but so like really delve into that work and just figure out what young people are passionate about like introduce them to things like 
you know, don't stifle their creativity or their, their, you know, their ideas of like wanting to do 50 different things. And that's the thing I love about Iman is like, I want to do a lot of different stuff, but I never really had that opportunity as a young person to do that because it's like, well, it's not realistic. You know what I mean? Like, I, how are you going to take the SAT, but then, you know, go do something else at the same time, right? Like that, those, that idea or that world doesn't exist for, for a lot of folks. And, and I think that is how we can reimagine youth work is by like extending the possibilities that our young folks have and why the networking part is so crucial. I think for Iman is like, it's a network, right? We should be able to tap into it, tap out, shift to the whole other side of the network at one, you know, one end and then shift to the other one when we need to. Um, and I think that helps us as like a community, as a society, as a region, whatever, like heal, survive, and then hopefully thrive once we like get past like what, you know, the situation we're in right now. Um, so those are like the two things that I'm kind of like stuck between is like changing those systems to change individuals and then, um, you know, getting that passion flared up and, and engaging and, and not just for young folks too, but the, the adults to get them like, you know, passionate about stuff too. So they can really bring that passion to our young folks as well, for sure. For sure. So we, as an organization, work with a lot of practitioners, folks in mentoring orgs, youth development spaces, inside of schools, outside of schools. What strategies do you guys want to offer them to make their work more critical? <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah, it usually takes, um, takes a couple of hours of, of training. <laughs> and then at, even then, I feel like, oh, gosh, I didn't say as much as I wanted to or I didn't like build with them. I think that um, sometimes I feel like I want to be like a fly on the wall or a person at the table when it comes to like their, you know, quarterly meetings on like what programs are we going to invest in or not. And it's like, it's hard to do that from just a small amount of, of time. Um, but I think that bringing young people to the table has always been one of the things that has served us incredibly well and not just bringing them to the table, but giving them like voice power and choice over the processes. Um, I think that being intentional about understanding that youth come from different marginalized backgrounds and it's important to bring queer youth to the table. It's important to bring uh, disabled youth to the table. It's important to bring undocumented youth to the table because they're going to give you perspectives that you just can't have. You just won't have as an adult, even if you share an identity with them, they're going to bring a new and informed perspective to the programs and to the work that you do. And so I think that bringing both the young people and the community they inhabit to the table is, is in, incredibly key. Also leveraging what you have for the community. So instead of going in and deciding this is what needs to change, asking the community themselves and, and promising a leveraging of your resources, right? Your grant dollar, your staff power in order to create the change that the community sees as necessary. So you may come in as an organization and say, okay, we need to have mentors and they need to do um, you know, reading, right? And for an hour with a student every single day, and that's going to be the benchmark that we're going to set. But if you talk to the community, you may find out that they're experiencing food insecurity. You may find out that they're experiencing gentrification or housing insecurity. Mm -hmm. And, and so if your work starts at just addressing those symptoms, you completely ignore the causes and you just spin your own organizational wheels of, of not really doing the work of not really getting down to what the root of the issues are and the things that you seek to change in the community. Um, and so we were just having a little bit of conversation about this uh, before we started recording, which is, you know, who is at the table? <laughs> 
who is who's making the decisions right and it's 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 interesting because you can look at an organization you can look at who is at the decision making table and then sort of start to guess at or understand what those uh, what the band-aids are going to look like, right? And truthfully, that's what they usually are, is just band-aids over issues rather than solutions, rather than agency and empowerment to the people that you're trying to serve. Um, so that was a couple of a couple of things all left <laughs> up together. Ooh, yeah. Um, geez, I, I, like, it's interesting because I know Isabella and I have, like, talked about this after like so many trainings and stuff like that. And I feel like when people go into trainings or they, they, they're seeking like some sort of consulting or whatever the case may be, there's always got to be some quantifiable like potion or something that we got to pull out of some like box that we bring with us somehow that like has Iman on the front of it. And we're just <laughs> like, here, y'all got it. Like, just do it now. Um, and it's just not like that. You know, I, I think like, at least the way that I want to think about trainings is like, I'm just going to give you a bunch of things that I hope are interesting to you. And I hope you like make some sort of connection in your brain because there is no way to be a good mentor. There is no way to like do that work. Like, you know, not, not no way, but there's no like special thing that's going to make it happen. Right. Just because you have your bachelor's or just because you have your master's or your PhD and you've been researching this stuff doesn't mean that you're a good mentor on the ground. Right. Um, I, I think a lot of it has to do with like, are you just like, are you just present? Are you just there? Like, can you understand when a young person with a queer identity, with an immigrant background, um, who's black, whatever the case may be, is like sharing something like deep with you or wants to, can you just be there, you know, and like support and ask questions and just like, listen and like be a good human being, I guess. I don't know. Um, but yeah, just being present, you know, and just being able to pivot, I think is like super important. And, and Isabel and I have like talked about that too, is just like the ability to just pivot, right? To just recognize like, yeah, I'm doing something wrong. Like obviously what I'm doing is not working. So let me talk to people. Let me ask my young people, you know, like, am I doing this right? Am I doing this like wrong? What do you all think? You know, um, I think it's super, super important, but there's a lot of, you know, personal individual things that are that are tied to that right like your ego or like whatever the case may be um you know your ageism whatever whatever is going on with you but but yeah but just being present being able to just chill out relax like see how things are going in that critical self-reflection i think is super super important for sure for sure so just also really briefly i'll put you on the spot one more time really briefly you know thinking about what's happening right now with george floyd and thinking about how organizations will be and already are reaching out to us for some guidance on how to support their young people. Do you have one or two things that you think that they should be doing right now in terms of supporting black youth and processing the black death, the, the, the anti-black violence that they're seeing all the time? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult question. Um, I think actually just, I believe it was today, the Search Institute, which puts out the 40 developmental assets that we use so much when we work with folks on, they actually sent out, they're based in um, in Minneapolis. And so they sent out a letter from their CEO and, and in the, the letter, I, open, I, I don't usually read these letters, but I opened it up because I wanted to look at the specific language that they were using, because that says a lot, mm -hmm. right? How how strictly or, or how specifically are you going to point the finger to these systemic issues? Yeah. How honest are you going to be? Are you going to say, okay, are we in trying times? Or as the letter said, are you going to talk about the, another senseless death of a black man in our community at the hands 
of an institution within our community, right? So how specific and how unapologetic are you about supporting your marginalized communities? How, um, you know, a lot of times, and it's, I mean, this comes up a lot in, in research, there's this need to be un unbiased, right? But these deaths are not unbiased for the communities that are experiencing them. And I look at it a lot with also with, with queer issues and, and the um, continuing uh, murders of black trans women, right? That are happening. We need to be unapologetic in saying their names. We need to be unapologetic in calling out the institutions that are doing this harm. And then once we've done that, once we've put our own names and our own organizational, you know, respect, you know, on the line when we say those things, then working with the communities and saying, okay, what do we need to do, right? And, and like God says, sometimes that's a pivot. Um, sometimes it's, you're already doing that work, but it just means a doubling down on that work. But I think that, that you know, in, in an age of, of, of political correctness, in an age in which you're constantly trying to protect your, your, your grant dollars, you're trying to protect yourself from possible you know, uh, scandals or whatever, or saying the wrong thing. I think that truthfully, a lot of organizations want to just tiptoe around saying the, the real honest fact. And I think that you actually put in our, uh, our Mighty Network a question that you put out to everyone. And I remember I, I opened up the, the notification. I was just like, whoa, this is direct. But you, you said straight up, I believe the question was, what is your organization doing to talk to your young people about the continued death of, of black people, right? Or, or something to that degree, but it was like specifically, all right, let's, I wanna see receipts. Let's, let's talk about this honestly and frankly. And I think that a lot of people are afraid of, of being very apologetic with uh, the fact of the matter of what's going on, right? And people want to operate in the shades of gray, but sometimes it is a little bit black and white. And when you, when you do tiptoe around these issues, communities, they notice that, and they recognize that you aren't on my side. You maybe want to be an ally, but you're definitely not ready to be a co-conspirator and you're not ready to be involved in, in, in my liberation. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, I can't really follow that because <laughs> <laughs> uh, that just kind of lays it all, all down there. I, I think the only point that I would make um, to practitioners or just folks that engage in youth work is to remind your young folks who do come from marginalized backgrounds, um, especially if you have black identifying black presenting young folks, like to remind them that you're not doing anything wrong. You know, your communities aren't doing anything wrong. This is clearly like not your fault. And this has been stuff we've known for so long now. And it's just like that point of frustration where it just continuously grows, you know, or even yeah. So just reminding folks that like, it's okay. You don't have to post about it. You don't have to keep reposting things that are traumatic already. We already know these things. Um, just for like, you know, do what you need to, to, to engage in, in self-care, I think is like, is super important. And, and that's just, yeah, that's not, that's my perspective as far as like thinking about that. I think on the Latinx side of it, especially on the white passing Latinx side, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in the Latinx community around anti-blackness and stuff like that. Um, and thinking through those issues and thinking like, and I think the, the past few days really have shown us like, have we all engaged in ex like things like this where we could put black lives like on the line, you know what I mean? By calling the police or by other things, like really critically thinking through, um, you know, how do we engage with our, with our communities that are local to us that are black or are, are queer or are immigrants too, right? Um, 
And so really, I think doing that critical self-reflection work, once again, is just super important on the individual level, but definitely reminding our folks, like, it's not, it's not you. We just really need to change the system, really. And the other side really is the one that really needs to get things moving and get things changing for sure. Yeah, for sure. So my final question for each of you in your freedom dream, what does the future of youth work look like? Oh gosh, there's, there's so much there. Um, there's so much there. I think, so youth work as a whole, can I, can I touch on educational systems also? Like, I mean, (laughs) um, I I just think that it's a lot more, um, relationship based. And I think that there's a lot less classrooms. There's a lot less large class sizes in which there's like, you know, just like a group of students that are like, like I said earlier, expect some certain benchmarks and standards and everything. And what we actually are doing is engaging all the members of the community to be involved in youth work, right? And understanding that if we want our, everyone talks about, okay, society, this, 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 this is wrong with society, or I have this problem with the youth nowadays. And it's like, why aren't you involved in, in the process then? Why aren't you bringing your resources to the table, to your experience to the table? Why aren't you more invested in thinking about like, who's going on the school board? What are these people like fighting for that are on the school board that are making these decisions? Why aren't you thinking about the superintendents in the same way that you're thinking about your congressmen and your local established representatives, right? And so I think that the, the, the future of youth work in, in bringing all sorts of people to the table helps young people realize that it's not just gonna be, I mean, for lack of a better term, like usually female, white middle-class woman teaching or being a mentor or being a person that's involved in youth work. It means a person who has been previously incarcerated. It means a person who is undocumented, uh, disabled, queer, whatever, right? It, it means opening up the, the, the types of mentors we want to see in youth work. Because what that does is, and this is, I guess, the, the end of, of the end goal of the freedom dream is helping uh, young people to understand they don't need to change themselves. They just need to develop themselves they need to work on their craft be they the artists that we work with like for example in digital dreamers academy or they want to go on to four-year institutions or they want to be engaged in whatever sort of work putting them into contact and helping them build relationships with people who are going to help them get there and folks who understand their specific identities is is completely paramount i had the, the fortune of having that and i attribute all of if not most of my professional success to that, right? And so I think that, you know, young people deserve to have a diverse set of, of mentors and not just one, but a community of people who are involved in their development, right? Including hopefully their parents and, and their, you know, their blood relatives and everything. For sure. Um, yes, I, I love that. Um, I think for my freedom dream um, and all that. Uh, I think the same way that we want to see more caring, competent young folks, I want to see more caring, competent adults, like on the on the other end. Um, and what I mean by caring, competent is like, I want, you know, both young folks and, and adults to just have a diverse set of experiences, a diverse set of, you know, um, of ways to care, ways to be empathetic, ways to be sympathetic to folks and stuff like that. 
um, and different ways of just being competent, right? Like incompetent, not meaning like you're, 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 you're not getting it or whatever. You're less than as far as your thinking or your critical thinking, but competent and just like you can feel comfortable asking questions in situations that you don't understand, but also feel competent, like confident that you can actually get through this, right? Or can like work through these situations and stuff like that. So I think we'd have a much, you know, better more caring, competent world, I think, if we were able to accomplish that on both ends, for sure. For sure. Thank you both for being here. Y'all have been listening to the Dream Team, Youth Mentoring Action Network's Isabella Chavez and Kade Maldonado, who are our director of programs and (laughs) our director of training and outreach. So when folks, again, ask me, what's the secret sauce? How do we do this work? These are the folks that are my go-to. These are the folks that I'm in constant conversation with around this work. Subscribe, share with the homies, and until next time, keep doing good work.